0: Turn with me to John chapter 1, John chapter 1 verse 14. We're closing out our series on the prologue to the gospel of John about the Word made flesh. The Word is John's term for Jesus. and We've talked over the last couple of weeks about why John used that term, but I want to start by telling you this. When I was a younger guy, younger pastor uh, at another church, the church where I served expected me to do a children's sermon every week. So, you know, you see how at 11 o'clock when I get up to preach, all the little kids run out. Don't take that as a bad sign. That's just our procedure. They're going to children's church, children's worship. Uh, But in this church, there was no kids worship. There was just this little moment when the middle of the worship service, when all of a sudden the pianist would hit the notes of Jesus loves me, this I know, and all the kids would come galloping up front and they would sit on the front steps of the altar, and I would sit down in the middle of them, and I would share a little two- or three-minute talk with them. Now, what I learned from that is that I am not meant to work with small children. That is not my gifting or calling from the Lord. Don't get me wrong. I love small children. I love your kids. I, love, I think they're a lot of fun. At that age, they're a ton of fun to watch and be around I'm just, I'm just not equipped to hold their attention for long stretches of time. That's just not how God wired me. I mean, I am in awe of people like Kathy, like the, the people who teach our, our kids' life groups, especially of elementary school teachers who can hold the attention or at least maintain the control of kids without them wandering off or getting lost or lighting the building on fire or breaking into a riot. Uh, I got to tell you, those two or three minutes every week were the most stressful part of my week, and I'm not joking. And so recently, I found a script that I wrote for one of those children's sermons. Yes, I wrote out a script. I didn't read it, but I had to write it all out so that, so that I could know what I was going to say. That's how nervous I was about all this. And so I want to read you this children's sermon I did Probably more than a decade ago. In fact, I know it was more than a decade ago because I remember I brought this little uh, little fish bowl. We had bought my daughter uh, three little goldfish, and and I brought them in in their little fish bowl. And Kaylee was probably five or six years old. So I'm sitting there with the kids. Now, just picture this. In fact, imagine you're one of the kids gathered around there. So here's what I said. I want you to imagine something silly with me. Imagine that my fish escaped. I don't know how they would do that. Maybe it would be like on Finding Nemo. Maybe we're cleaning out the bowl, and they roll their little baggies toward the water. But let's say they escaped and made it to a creek or a river or a lake. I'd be worried about my fish. I'd want them back, and I'd want—I'd know that out there in the real world, they'd probably get eaten by bigger fish, or get lost, or, or, or never be seen again. So imagine I was somehow able to find them wherever they were, in whatever creek or river or lake they were in. How do I get them back? They're too fast for me to catch with my bare hands. I don't have a net. I could call them, but I don't speak fish. They wouldn't understand me. So here's an idea. What if I became a fish myself? What if I got down on their level, and and then they wouldn't be afraid of me, and then they would understand what I was saying to them? I could tell them, it's not safe for you out in the wild. You need to come back with me and live in the fishbowl again where you're perfectly safe, and there's plenty of food, and, and everything's good. And that's a good plan, right? Except... I don't want to become a fish, because I like being human. And what if while I'm a fish, some bigger fish comes along and eats me? There's a lot of risk there. And what if the fish, if I go to all that trouble and the fish don't even listen to me? What if they do the little fins and circles around their ears and say, the new fish is crazy? Well, I I would be taking a real chance. I have to tell you, I would really have to love these fish to become a fish myself. And and I really don't love these fish that much. I mean, if, if this was a real scenario, I would just go to Walmart and buy more goldfish because they're only like 20 cents a piece. And I even had this written in parentheses in the script. Don't worry, kids, the fish can't understand what I'm saying right now. So, by the way, that's the best children's sermon I ever did. So, you know, but... What I'm trying to do in that, what I was trying to do is explain one of the most complex and important doctrines in the entire Bible and the entire Christian faith. And that is the doctrine of the incarnation of God in the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas time. The fact that God became human. Nathan talked about this. In fact, I was afraid he was going to preach the sermon for me. Uh, He's starting on that road. I mean, this this is what happened. Jesus became a man in, in a way no one saw coming. And that's what I was talking to the kids about. And that's what verse 14 is about that we're looking at today. In fact, all of the prologue, all that we've been talking about since the Sunday after Thanksgiving is leading up to this one mammoth verse. And you, you have to get this verse down. Y'all, most of the time when I preach, they're action sermons. I preach and I say, here's what the Bible says, so now you and I need to go out and do this. You and I need to go out and forgive this person. You and I need to go out and have this conversation. You and I need to go out and repent of this sin. We need, to, we need to examine our hearts. We need to share our faith. But today is more of a different kind of message. It's more of a, because the Word of God says this, this is what you need to believe. Now, some of you already believe what we're going to talk about this morning, but you haven't heard it in a long time. Maybe you haven't considered it in a long time, and hopefully today when we look at John 1.14, you're going to say, wow, I'd forgotten how wonderful that is, and you're going to worship God in a brand new way. Some of you aren't aware of this doctrine of the incarnation. You aren't fully aware of what it means, and it's going to reshape the way you think, and therefore it's going to reshape the way you live. So John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth now the whole bible is inspired by god and all of it's true and all of it's wonderful but there are some verses that are that are just bigger than others some verses that are just foundational to our faith and this is one of them so i want to go through it phrase by phrase so it starts with and the word became flesh And dwelt among us. Some of you know this, but 700 years before this was written, the prophet Isaiah had a conversation with the king of Judah, a man named Ahaz. Ahaz was one of the worst kings that Judah ever had. He was not a believer in Yahweh, he did not lead the nation well. Isaiah was talking to this faithless king, and he was saying, Listen, I know you're worried because you've got these two nations that are getting ready to invade your land, and you know you're not strong enough to defeat them yourself. But God's going to take care of you. If you'll just trust him, God's going to to run those two nations off. You're going to be safe. In fact, here's how powerful God is. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So Isaiah says that to the king. The virgin will conceive and give birth. Here's what you need to know. 700 years before the time of Christ, Isaiah said that, and no one thought he was being literal. No one thought Isaiah really meant that a virgin would give birth. They thought he meant, you know what Ahaz, in the time it takes a, a young unmarried woman to get married, get pregnant, and have a child, in that amount of time, God will get rid of these two nations that are trying to invade you. But 700 years later, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, or I'm sorry, in, in Matthew, the early verses of Matthew, he, he, uh, he quotes Isaiah 7.14, And says, that's Jesus he's talking about. Born of the Virgin Mary. A young woman from Nazareth who has never been with a man. This is a child who is conceived in a way no other child has ever been conceived or ever will be conceived. And then he says this. He quotes that verse from Isaiah. And then he says, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see what Matthew did there? He said, for all you who don't speak Hebrew, I want you to understand how wonderful it is what God has done. He has come to be one of us. Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, is it hard to understand how a child can be born of a virgin? Absolutely. That's a miracle. That's something only God can do. Here's something that makes it even more miraculous. No one in Judaism had ever even considered something like that would happen. I'm not just talking about the virgin birth. I'm talking about God becoming a human. That was not something that had ever been considered. You go back and read all the Old Testament scriptures. You read the the commentaries on the scriptures by the rabbis. You read all the Jewish texts leading up to the time of Jesus. Nobody said, someday God's going to become a man, except Isaiah. And even they didn't understand him. No one expected it, and yet that's exactly what happened. Why would it happen? Why would they expect it? Because why would God become a human? It doesn't make any sense. God dwells in unapproachable light. God sits on a throne in heaven, surrounded by millions of angels who worship and serve Him day and night. God, get this, God has never, ever ached or hurt or struggled. Ask yourself the question, when's the last time you complained about something pertaining to your physical body? Has it been within the last 24 hours? I bet it has. If not, it's been at least within the last week. God never had to deal with any of that stuff. No aching backs. No, I wish my allergies weren't killing me. No, I'm not getting enough sleep at night. None of that. He never got the cold. He never got the stomach bug. He never got the flu. And yet he traded that in for a physical body like ours. A week susceptible human body like ours. A body that would get tired, a body that could be physically injured, that could get sick, that could die. And to make matters worse, he chose to live among people like us with all of our idiocy and cruelty and selfishness. He chose that. Why would he do that? It doesn't make sense. It's as ridiculous as a man becoming a fish. And yet, that's what the Word of God says he did. That's exactly what it says he did. And this is one of the most important doctrines of all. John, the guy who wrote John 1.14, he would later write the book of 1 John in John 1 4, one 1-3. He says, anyone who doesn't believe this doctrine of the Incarnation is the Antichrist. In other words, you are, you are inhabiting the spirit that is opposed to Jesus on this earth. If you don't think that Jesus was God in human flesh, you're not a believer. You're not a follower of Christ. You're something else. You're opposed to what He's doing. That's how important this doctrine is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Second phrase, we have seen His glory. That term glory, we use in all kinds of weird ways today. We talk about it in terms of uh, a movie star or a champion athlete. But glory in biblical terms refers only to to the manifestation of God's power and righteousness. Let me say that in English. Whenever God in the Bible showed up and made himself known so that there was no mistake, so that everyone saw and was like, okay, that's God, and I am in awe, that was called the glory of God. So a couple of examples. When Moses stands on the shore of the Red Sea and, and prays to God and the waters part and the Israelites walk through, not in mud, but on dry ground, how do you do that? Well, you've got to be God, right? He gets across, he prays again, God causes the waters to converge on the Egyptian army and wipe them off the face of the earth. That's the glory of God. No one had any doubt. No one said, oh, look at what Moses did. No, they said God just showed up. Second example, when Elijah's on top of Mount Carmel and he's, he's, he's facing off against the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Baal have prayed and prayed all day and almost into the night for their God to show up and manifest himself and nothing has happened. And then Elijah steps up and says, okay, God, bring it, which is not actually what he said, but that's the modern paraphrase, right? He says, okay, God, bring it. And down comes the fire of heaven and roasts the, the altar and everyone fell on their knees and said, the Lord, he is God. That's the glory of God. So, in Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40 verse 5, it says these words. And by the way, if, you, if you're a fan of Handel's Messiah, you've heard this. This is one of the best songs in that entire cantata. Uh, Isaiah 40 verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. For the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Isaiah is saying, someday the whole world's going to see the glory. It's not just going to be people on top of a mountain. It's not just going to be people by the seashore. It's going to be the whole earth is going to look and say, oh, that's God. And so the Israelites for 700 years lived with that prophecy and said, someday it's going to come true. Someday the whole world will see who our God really is. And I'm sure in their minds it was going to be like a Red Sea kind of moment or a Mount Carmel kind of moment when the enemies of God were vanquished and and God's people themselves were delivered and everything was set right. And when it happened, it was Jesus. It wasn't a Red Sea moment. It wasn't a Mount Carmel moment. It was it was a humble carpenter who'd come to be our Savior. It wasn't what they expected. The glory of God was revealed. Jesus showed up and said, this is what God is. This is who God is. If you want to know what God is like, watch me, listen to me, follow me. Which, by the way, these days we look at it and we say, man, that's wonderful news. Because I wouldn't want my God to be anybody else than Jesus himself. But at the time, people said, this is not what we expected. We wanted fire. We wanted wanted something that's going to blow our enemies away. We didn't want humility and sacrifice. Y'all know that even John the Baptist at one point doubted. Even he was caught off guard. Matthew 11 says that when John the Baptist was in prison for criticizing King Herod, which is always what happens when God's people follow righteousness against those who sit on the throne of power. Just expect that, right? When John the Baptist was in prison awaiting his execution, he sent a message, and it's recorded in Matthew 11, he sent a message to Jesus saying, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Did you catch that? This is John, right? This is John the Baptist. We just talked about him last week as the model preacher. This was the first person to publicly acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. This is the one whose specific call was to prepare the way of the Lord. And now he's asking, okay, Jesus, are you really the one or is there somebody else coming? And Jesus said, you tell John, blind people see, deaf people hear, lame people walk. The poor people are hearing the gospel for the first time in their lives. I'm doing exactly what I was sent to do. And by the way, Jesus wasn't mad at John. In fact, he goes on to praise John in a very eloquent way, as the greatest preacher of all. So God is not offended at our doubts. He is the answer to our doubts. It's interesting. Some years ago during the second Iraq war, uh, Donald Rumsfeld was secretary of defense at the time. He was giving a press conference. This was after a major battle in Iraq. And a reporter asked him, he said, "Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld, Why are things not going according to the battle plan? And Rumsfeld snapped at him and said, Sir, I don't think you have the battle plan. How do you know things aren't going according to plan? I know what the plan is. You don't know what the plan is. What Jesus was saying to John in a much more kind and gracious way was, John, I've got the plan. I know what I'm here to do and I'm doing it. Trust me. This is all working for the glory of God. This is all working for the redemption of the world. And it ought to remind us, the next time we sit there and say, I don't know what God's up to, we just need to remember, yeah, that's because I don't have the battle plan, and He does. We have seen His glory in the form of Jesus. Third phrase, glory as of the only Son from the Father. When it says the only Son in Greek, it literally is the one and only. So literally it says, glory as of the one and only from the Father. And that too is crucial. Jesus is the only one of His kind, the only one who has ever been, the only one who ever will be the Savior of the world, the King of the universe, the Son of God. And that's a controversial thing to say, especially today. And it's, it's even controversial within the church because we've grown, we've grown really timid about declaring Christ as the one true God. And I understand why. Our grandparents and great-grandparents, most of them could live most of their lives, maybe all of their lives, without ever meeting someone of another faith. Unless they lived in a big city, they'd probably never meet somebody who believed in a different God than the one we believe in. And when you grow up that way, it's easy to believe, oh, they don't know what they're talking about, we're the people of the truth. But when you get to know people of other faiths, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, etc., Jewish, whatever, when you get to meet them and you get to understand, oh, they're people like us. They love their families just like we do. They love their country. They They love their community. They're not so bad. And it's tempting to start to say, well, then obviously their God is just as much God as our God is. Their prophet is just as important as Jesus is. But Scripture won't let us say that. The Scripture is is absolutely, unequivocally clear that Jesus is the one and only from the Father full of grace and truth. He's the only one of His kind. And if that's the only place it said it, it might be debatable, but all through the Scriptures, Jesus keeps coming back and saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. You believe in me and you'll never die. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts, in the book of Acts, the, the, the apostles say, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name by which people can be saved. And I could go on and on and on. Listen, please understand, I am thankful to God that I live in a country where there is freedom of religion. And by the way, for those of you who are not history buffs, we as Baptists have, we can be thankful that our Baptist forebears had a big part in that. The Baptists in the early colonial period wrote to Thomas Jefferson and, and argued that there should be no state church, uh, no government should not get involved in promoting one religion or one denomination over another, and Jefferson agreed, and therefore we have this glorious uh, freedom of religion. Listen, we Baptists have done a lot wrong, but at least we can be proud of that, right? Right? And it's good to live in a country where that exists. And so when we uphold the freedom of religion, not just for ourselves, but for other faiths, that's that's an act of loving our neighbor. When we show respect to people who believe differently than we do, when we treat them with kindness, when we don't see them as the enemy, you understand, don't you, that the people who believe in different gods are still people Christ died for, right? Are still people that He wants in His family. They're not our enemies. And it disgraces the name of Jesus Christ when we treat them as an enemy instead of a lost brother or sister who needs to come home. And having said all that though, with all our graciousness, with all our kindness, with all our respect towards people of other faiths, we still have to come back and say, yes, but I wish you knew Jesus because He's the one true Savior. And that is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Glory as of the one and only from the Father. And then finally, there's that last phrase, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are two such key concepts in the Christian faith. Grace, that's the heart of the gospel. That's the idea that God does not love you based on what you do. He loves you based on who He is, which does not change. The good news about grace is because you can't earn it, you can't lose it. That means that there is nothing you could ever do once you're God's child, nothing you could ever do to cause Him to love you any less than He already does or any more. And then truth. Truth is the idea that God is going to tell us what is actually true about us, whether we like it or not. Even if it hurts our feelings, He's going to get in our face. Truth is what gets in our face and says, You need to repent, you need to change. And one way you can measure your maturity as a believer is how do you respond when someone confronts you with a way you need to change? When you hear the truth, do you immediately fall to your knees and say, thank you, I need to repent? Or do you get mad? Do you get offended? Full of grace and truth. Let's be honest. All of us live on a continuum between grace and truth. All of us are either a little more grace people or a little more truth people by nature. Now, grace people... Grace people are fun to have around. They're they're good to have as friends because they're nice, because they're forgiving, because they're gracious and kind. They laugh at all your jokes, even the ones that are stupid because they don't want you to feel embarrassed. They're quick to forgive you. They rarely get angry with you and when they do, they're quick to apologize. They, They always make you feel good. You like grace people. On the other hand, truth people, you admire truth people because they don't care what anyone thinks of them. They're going to say what's true. And if you get mad at them, they're okay with that. In fact, sometimes they welcome that because it means, I know that I struck a chord. I know that I'm speaking the truth because I'm I'm facing opposition. If you think about the people you most admire, historical figures, political leaders, military heroes, activists, people who stood up and spoke truth to power, they were truth people. They had to be. So, we like grace people, we admire truth people, but there's a dark side to both. You see, if, if you meet somebody who's all grace and no truth, they're a coward and a hypocrite. You see, they don't really have your best interests at heart. They won't tell you you're headed in the wrong direction, because they're afraid that it's going to get awkward, you're going to get angry with them. They're, they're too much on the side of grace, they, they won't tell you the truth. And they'll let you drive off a cliff before they'll offend you enough to say, hey, you need to change your direction. On the other hand, truth people who are truth with any, without any grace, they're toxic to be around. You read the stories of some of those people we admire the most, the people who've changed the world in various ways, they rarely had friends. They often burned out their families. Their kids didn't, did, didn't want to have anything to do with them. Their wives, they might, might have cycled through marriages because you can't live with a person who's truth and no grace because they don't love people. All they care about is being right and winning the argument. And then along comes Jesus. And He's more full of truth than the, the most hardcore truth person you've ever met. And He's more full of grace than the nicest and nice guy you ever met. He's full of grace and truth. Because you know what is smack dab in the middle of truth and grace and full of both? Love. That's love. And that's Jesus. Jesus was full of grace. So full of grace, He spent most of His time around the most sinful people in His society. Even though it hurt His reputation, even though it made people question His goodness, His heart went out to the people who were most lost of all. And those people loved Him for it. Can you imagine a church where the most, the most far-from-God people possible are indelibly attracted and want to be in church every Sunday? That was Jesus. He never got tired of healing people. He never got tired of feeding people. He never got tired of talking to people about the love of God. He even loved people who rejected him. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Rich young ruler walks away from Jesus, and the Gospels say, and Jesus loved him. On the other hand, Jesus was full of truth. Jesus did not lose a minute's sleep over someone being angry or offended at Him. He stood up against the religious leaders because they had twisted God's covenant with humanity into something legalistic and exclusive. They were the most respected people in the nation and yet Jesus didn't care he was going to tell them the truth no matter what it cost. He was brutally honest with everyone. When someone came to follow Jesus and said, I'm, I, I want to be your disciple, any one of us, even the most hardcore truth person in the room would have said, oh great, it's good to have somebody on my side. Jesus was like, are you sure? Because you're not going to have a bed to sleep in. Most of the time you're not going to have food and there's a really good chance you're going to die. You still want to follow me? Because he was committed to speaking the truth. When his best friend Peter tried to get in the way of him going to the cross, what did Jesus say? Oh, Peter, I appreciate your, your consideration. No, he said, get behind me, Satan. That's the worst insult Jesus could give. Jesus was full of truth, and yet he was full of grace. He was truthful enough to let us know that we were utterly and completely lost in our sin, but he was gracious enough to do something about it. That's our Savior. That's Emmanuel. And that's all well and good, and I hope you ponder that, and I hope it means a lot to you. But if I were a betting man, which I'm not because I'm dirt cheap, but if I were a betting man, I would bet that most of you, the only thing you'll remember, if you remember anything from this sermon, the only thing you'll remember is my fish story, right? That's what's going to stick, and that's Okay. Because that's how amazing the Incarnation is. As out of this world, as the idea of a man becoming a fish just to rescue three Walmart goldfish. That's how amazing it is that Jesus became a man to rescue us. Why not just make more people, right? Why not just write us off and start over and make humanity 2.0? But that's not what He did. He chased us. See, where the, where the analogy breaks down is Jesus didn't just come to tell us how to be saved. He came to be our Savior. You see the difference? I tell people how to be saved. You, it's your job to tell people how to be saved. Jesus, only Jesus could be our Savior. He came to die for us, not just to tell us how to come home. Not only that, He didn't just come to save us for life in a fishbowl. He came to save us for life more abundant, for joy, for peace, for hope of eternal life, for purpose, the knowledge that every day we'll do something that echoes in eternity. He saved us for that, for the ultimate life. And it tells us two things. It tells us, number one, we're way more lost than we realized. If God would have to come to us, we're just as lost as three Walmart goldfish in the San Jacinto River. We're so lost that God had to die for us. But the second thing it tells us is, we mean so much to Him that He was glad to do so. That's how important we are in the eyes of God, every single one of you. Even the person in this room who thinks the lowest of him or herself is worth the life of the Savior of God because you're worth what someone will pay for it. And Jesus considered you worth his own life. And if you want to hear a better analogy than one I can make up, I read this years ago and it stuck with me. Two dads were at Walt, Walt Disney World, took their kids to, to that park, um, and you know how it is, if you've never been there, you've probably seen on TV that as you're walking through the park, the, the different Disney characters are sort of milling around, and they came across Cinderella. And if you can imagine the most beautiful young woman you've ever seen, just physical perfection. They've chosen this flawless young woman, this radiant young woman to inhabit this character of Cinderella. And she comes walking down in her blue gown and all the kids are flocking to her and and jumping up and down and and trying to get her attention. And and the two dads watch their kids run into the crowd as well. And then they notice this other kid, this other child who's kind of in the outskirts because he can't really move. This is a child who's who's been born with some very, very profound birth defects. You can just look at him and tell. Number one, he's, he's not very mobile. Number two, his, his appearance just isn't like other kids and never will be. And everyone notices him at that moment, including Cinderella. And then she very gently brushes past all the clamoring kids all around her. And she goes up to this little boy and she crouches down beside him. And she whispers something in his ear and then she kisses him. And one of the dads says wow, that's a really great picture of what Jesus did for us, right? And the second dad said, no. It would be a perfect picture of what Jesus did for us if she became crippled so that he could walk. If she became deformed so he could be beautiful. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's why That's why my favorite hymn, we sang it this morning, says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel.